This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. We're going to be reading 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God's will is, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you for everyone in this room, Father. I just lift up each of our hearts to you, God, and just pray um, that if there's any distractions, any um, heartaches, anything that we need to bring to you, Lord, that we would be able to do that today. God, I lift up Kurt and just pray that you would be with him. And I just um, thank you for this day and all that you have given us. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Now you can be seated. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. First Peter chapter 3. Man, I've loved, I've loved walking through the book of First Peter. Um, this will be the last time we get to walk through First Peter for a couple of months. We'll take a pause for Advent. And if you want to go ahead and read in preparation, you, we're going to be hanging out all the month of December in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be spending time in two original songs, one written by Mary, one written by Zachariah. We'll spend two weeks on each of those. So if you kind of want to get, be getting your heart ready, prep for it, reading through some of those, Luke chapter 1 is where you can be getting ready. But today, for the last time of this calendar year, we're going to be in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. And what we're getting to be in today is a little bit of a culmination of what's been happening from the beginning of chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 3 begins with an introduction to suffering. And suffering is going to remain a primary theme for the rest of this letter that Peter writes to these churches that are scattered abroad. Now, I know that sounds like, oh, great. All right, now we get to start talking about suffering. Lots of fun. But what he does is not just talk about suffering, not just say, hey, I want you to grin and bear it and get through it. He says, here's the thing. God is handing you suffering as a gift and he is handing you suffering as an opportunity and what he's going to teach us to do for the rest of the book is in a way to weaponize our suffering as a means by which we proclaim and display the gospel to a lost world who sees no hope in their own suffering and so as we read today first peter chapter three i love the way now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good. The funny thing is, Peter starts this way like, who on earth would hurt somebody for doing good? And actually the whole point of the rest of the book is actually a lot of people, lots of people will harm you for doing good. That's actually the kind of the reality of life. We see that throughout the Psalms. This is like true through all the Old Testament. Who is there to harm you for doing good? Lots of people. Lots of people cannot wait to see you stumble. This is what you see. This, this is the the Davidic theme, that means as you walk through the book of Psalms, the things that David writes over and over, he says, man, 
God, every, it seems like people are waiting for me to mess up. They're waiting for me in the midst of my blessing, submission, and obedience to you. They're waiting for me to stumble. They're waiting for something bad to happen. And they're going to sit there with popcorn on the front row and be like, <laughs> this is what we see in the book of Job. Who is there to harm you for doing good? Lots of people. So what is there for us to learn from that? This is the heritage of the gospel. So I was thinking through this. I was, uh, we were talking a, a couple weeks ago. I was talking with a few guys about this passage, and we ended up just walking through, man, what does it look like to make sure that as I, as I preach the gospel, as I study a text, that what I find is not just like the minutia and the themes, but like how do I make sure that what I find is what God intends, which is always the story of his son, Heard somebody say, "Make sure that if your if your sermon was like a if your sermon was like a wet rag, that when you wring it out, that what drips out is nothing but the gospel, nothing but the story of Jesus." And you don't have to try hard with First Peter three thirteen to seventeen, because anytime we talk about suffering, I hope that where you always go is not to the suffering of the people in the early church. Not to the suffering of Job and not to the suffering of men like David in the Old Testament, even though many of them displayed the goodness of God in the midst of their hurt. But the ultimate, the ultimate example of what it means to suffer well was found in Christ. The ultimate example of what it means to suffer in a way that God intends is to look to the cross. The worst thing ever done happened to the best to ever live. If you want to know who on earth would harm someone for doing good, literally the one perfect man to ever live, came down, loved people, not just well. Have you ever realized that like Jesus handcrafted each of you? Every person he walked by on a street in Jerusalem, he remembered forming in their mother's womb. He knew exactly the way they were intended to be loved. And he loved them perfectly. And what did they do in exchange for perfect love? They murdered him for it. Now here's, here's the beautiful irony is that in his providential grace, he also established a way that the murder, your sin, my sin, people alive when Jesus was here on earth, people alive now, our sin, guilty of homicide, became the means of our redemption. So who will harm somebody for doing good? A lot of people will. I remember, uh, I know we've talked quite a few times up on this platform about the persecuted church. And uh, the last couple weeks, last two Sundays, were was called International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And all over the world, all over the world, there are people and places where being a believer in Jesus is the kind of thing that costs you a little bit more than just maybe some social discomfort at times. Um, I remember the first time I, you know, I got to travel quite a bit in my 20s, and I remember I'd, I'd read a bunch of books. I read a bunch of, like, missionary biographies. And if you, if you ever want to just, like, I, I don't know, they, maybe, maybe it's just the way that I'm wired, but if you ever want to see your faith just, like, stimulated in a beautiful way, like, get a missionary biography from somebody who pioneered in places that the gospel had never been. I mean, it's unbelievable. Guys like Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, 
men like even more modern, like Brother Yin in the nation of China. There's, oh man, there's these people that you read their stories and it is just the book of Acts coming back to life. And you see, you see these places. I remember going to the place where, where Thomas, you know, the one I'd always called Doubting Thomas. I remember seeing the spot where he was speared in the back in southern India and realized he had traveled further from Jerusalem than any other disciple that lived. And I was like, wait, that guy wasn't doubting Thomas. That was faithful Thomas. It was faithful Thomas. I remember seeing the place where Paul was beheaded. And then I also remember getting to, to see places where churches were burned recently, like in places like Otis and India. And I remember meeting with some of the believers there. And I had this idea, like, because I'd read these biographies, and I thought, oh, man, if I ever meet somebody who's been persecuted, they're going to be, like, superhero Christian. You know what I mean? I thought, oh, they'll just probably, like, levitate the whole time we talk. They'll, like, I'll walk in, and, like, I'll have sore places in my body, and I'll step into the room, and suddenly I'll just, like, have no sore places left on my body. I just, like, expected this, you know, like, supernatural experience. I remember the, one of the first times I got to spend time with persecuted believers. It was this, this fellow who was like super shy. And so he like kept his head down a lot of the time. And I remember being surprised. Like, whoa, what's going on? Like, what's, like I thought this dude would be like some, you know, oh, epic Christian. And, and he explained we were like right next to the church that had been burned down, still sledgehammer marks on the wall. And we were telling him that we, w- we would love to help rebuild their, their building, but we wanted to make sure that we weren't going to do that in a way that would invite further persecution. And he said, that won't be an issue. He said, right after the terrorists came through and burned our building down, he said, they came back a week later. They sat in this room where you are, and they asked us to forgive them because three of their leaders had fallen over dead supernaturally, and they told us they needed our forgiveness so that their leaders would stop dying. So there will not be any more issues with persecution. It's like, oh, yeah, make us, make us not. And the whole time, though, the whole time, this dude's just, like, head down. Like, he, um, he's saying this through a translator, and he's real shy, you know. And you can tell it's not super bold. I remember sitting with this little lady in a hut, and a hut notice that she was, like, in her, probably in her 60s. And she's recalling the story of when, when people came through her village, and she tried to hide, and they found her hiding. And they, she said, and, and they, they beat me. But the Lord gave me this, this gift to suffer for him. And she said, it happened right there. It's like four feet from where we're standing. And it was, to me, it was just wild because those had been stories on a page. They'd been stories on paper and books that I loved. They'd encouraged me. They'd like strengthen my own faith. But then to sit with these people, I was actually more encouraged by the fact that they weren't profound. It wasn't like God picked the most epic personalities and said, now, I shall bless. It was just people who were faithful. They wake up every day and they learn to say yes to Jesus. And I realize, guys, it's not. There's, there may be some people in this room that will have the opportunity to, to suffer in a very physical, tangible way for the sake of the gospel. And many of you, it may just be like social discomfort. Some of you, it might be family tension. Some people, it may be actual physical harm at some point in your life with wherever you go and wherever you are. But regardless, God has called us to take our suffering and to weaponize it. It's a weird word to use, but what I mean by that is to weaponize our suffering, to take the thing that God gives us and say, I will use this. 
I will use this as a platform, and I will use this as a way to show the goodness of God in the land of the living. So Psalm 27 calls it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3 was a verse that shook me up in a big way. I've talked about it multiple times even on this stage, but it's worth repeating anytime we talk about suffering. Hebrews 13, 3, remember those in prison as though chained with them and those who are suffering because you yourselves are also part of the body. Guys, when, when we talk about the persecuted church, I think the, the great gift that the Lord gave me in getting to meet persecuted believers and was that like they used to be stories. They used to be these just things in my imagination of like, oh, what those people were like. And then suddenly they had a face. And now when I pray for the persecuted church, I don't have to pray for it as a long, far off, distant thought. I can put a face to it. And I've got, I got friends attached to those realities. And to remember those in prison is though chained with them. Now, here's the deal with that. If God is inviting you, like this, there's, a, there's an, a weird irony that you and I in the United States of America are talking about suffering alongside a persecuted church. Because right now, like every hour and a half, every hour and a half, someone will be killed for the sake of Jesus. Someone will die for the sake of the gospel just because they're a believer. Lots of Christians will die in like loosely connected ways, maybe doing service plates. But like every hour and a half, I think it's about every hour and 27 minutes or so, someone will die because, simply because they love Jesus. Which means that likely by the end of our time together that we spent in this room, someone will lose their life for the sake of the gospel. And if God is saying to a group of people in the United States who, let's be honest, like persecution to us is kind of a foreign idea. Until I, until I began like meeting people and traveling the world, I had no idea. I thought persecution of the church was past tense. I didn't realize, do you, do you know this? This is, kind of, this is kind of insane that like more people have died from the year 1900 to today for the sake of the gospel than died from the death of Jesus to the year 1900. It's pretty wild. Now, some of that, obviously, because of the larger number of humans on earth, I get there's lots of mathematical things that you can put asterisks next to that. But regardless, more people died from the year 1900 to right now than died from the death of Jesus in 33 AD to the year 1900. And you and I happen to be living in a time where this is more of a reality than maybe any, any season of church history that has ever been. But we are insulated from it. And so I think it's incredibly important for you and I to realize that if God in his divine sovereignty would put into his word, remember those in prison as though chained with them, he would not do that unless there was a way for you and I to live in obedience. To live like those in prison for the gospel are sharing a fetter with you. Sometimes that's what I'll do. Like, I will sit there in prayer for the persecuted, and I'll stop. I was, I was doing it this morning. I was like, Lord, man, this is such a weird reality. Like, it's just, it's strange. It's strange to talk about in the comfort of the United States. It's strange in the 21st century, like, for us to try to make this real in our minds. And I'll just stop, and I'll close my eyes, and I'll say, Lord, let me imagine that I'm sharing a fetter. 
That means like a, a handcuff, a chain. Let me imagine I'm sharing a fetter with them. And guys, he, he won't say no to that. If you ask him, Lord, teach me what it means to not be insulated from the realities of what happens to those that are brothers and sisters in Christ, he will say yes to that. He'll teach you to love them. So who will charm you for doing something good? Lots of people. Lots of people around the world right now see the proof of that every day. And if you don't see the proof of it or if your proof of it is mere social, un- social discomfort, then ask the Lord to give you a heart to pray for and with those who are suffering because you are also part of the same body of believers. Now, leading up to this part of 1 Peter 3, right prior to, we had a, had a long list of people we were told to honor. Chapter 2, we were told to honor institutions. And it was interesting because we were told to honor institutions whether they're good or whether they're bad. We were told to honor masters, whether they're good or whether they're bad. We were told to honor husbands, wives in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. We're told to honor husbands, whether good or whether bad. And so we learned who to honor. And some of that was uncomfortable. You know, like, whew, man, like when you start talking about honoring ungodly institutions, ungodly governmental structures, that we honor those. I love the way Jesus handled that. When the Pharisees, they, they come up to him and they're like, we're going to catch him in this one. And they said, uh, should you pay taxes to Caesar? Ooh, that was like the one they thought, oh, we got him now. He's going to have nothing. He's like, anybody got any, uh, anybody got any money? And they like hand him a coin. It's got Caesar's face on it. It says, yeah, it looks like it belongs to Caesar. Give that back to him. Like just simple as can be. This ungodly structure that was literally, there was a partial reality of the fact that they were enslaved to this institution that had come in and taken over ownership of this land that God had promised to his people. And here they are in the middle of that land. And Jesus has the audacity to say, yeah, I'd say pay taxes to Caesar. Honor the institutions over you. We hear that today. And, you know, every... Every time, wherever you fall in the timeline of history, there has been some level of like dissonance, some level of dissonance with authorities, governmental and institutional. There always will be. Kind of been promised that will be the case. Um, It's unique to be in the United States where there is, you know, like our our, our thoughts. I realize like there's this, even at the beginning of when we started as a country, the, the nation we're sitting on the land that they own right now. You know, the United States of America, 1776, we have this declaration that is signed. And what is it called? The Declaration of Independence. It's the one word, the one word that is most offensive to gospel living. Independence. Now, I'm not saying that's nothing against. This is not like me coming against the Founding Fathers. I love researching what the reality is what some of those men's lives look like and the way that they submitted to the heart of God. And that was what brought them here. And I love, I love the history of how this nation began. But guys, I'm, this nation is to me what Rome was to Jesus, not what Israel was to Jesus. This nation is to me what Babylon was to Daniel, not what Israel was to Daniel. Like we're in a foreign land 
We are aliens and we are strangers. It's what First Peter will invite us into, and there is no alternative. There's not a dual citizenship. You get one citizenship. Pick heaven. Heaven's a better citizenship than your U.S. passport, even though that's an amazing gift. We are told to submit to institutions, whether they're good, whether they're evil, regardless of who is at the head, who is at the helm. This was to a people who were going to right after this suffer unbelievable amounts of persecution. Unbelievable amounts of persecution at the hands of Roman occupation. Many of them were going to be killed. Peter himself would be, history tells us, crucified upside down. Paul writes about the same thing, and he will be beheaded by order of the Roman emperor. And yet, he says, submit. So this is weird. Submit to bad leaders. Submit to poor demonstrations of authority. Why? Why would we do that? What on earth, could, what purpose could that serve? And in chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, we learn why. Because by honoring others, we honor Christ. I love the way he words this. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We will learn why, and here it is. Honor Christ. Always be prepared. Make a defense. Your reason for the hope. Because we are hope in a hopeless world. I love, uh, it was unique when he says, this passage is really cool because one of, it's one of my favorite verses for um, evangelism. Evangelism is the reality of presenting the gospel to those that don't know it. Telling people about Jesus who do not know him. Inviting them to walk out of darkness into marvelous light. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope. And when I read this, when I read this the first couple times through, to be honest, I read it as be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that you believe in Jesus. For a reason that you think the gospel is legitimate. But this doesn't say be prepared to give a reason for the gospel. It says be prepared to give a reason for the hope. And that's important because, because what we have here, hope is a little bit different than just defending the gospel. This is, not, this is not saying defend the truth of the gospel, even though we often will get to do that. What he's asking us here is live in such a way that your life is so filled with a hope that's defiant to a hopeless world that people get confused. Now, when you're giving a reason for your hope, you had better talk about the gospel. But this is not saying prepare and get ready to defend the gospel. It's saying when people come up to you confused that you live so hopeful, make sure you're always ready to tell them why. And the reason for your hope will be the gospel. Hope is greater than optimism. As I was studying this, I realized it's, it's kind of unfair for me to get to be the guy that talks about hope because I'm, a, I'm like an extremely optimistic human. Like, I'm talking, it's bad. Like, I, to the point that my, my brother-in-law makes fun of me a lot because he's like um, Brian right here um, who preached last week, did an amazing job. He always makes fun of me He's because I will, every, every time I meet somebody or tell them about somebody new, I'm like, man, they're awesome. He's like, Kurt, you've, you've never used any, you've never used any description about a person that was less enthusiastic than that. 
Like that's like, that could be like the least cool person you ever met. And they were like, awesome. And he's like, why, you, you just, you like everybody. I'm like, I do, I do, I just like them all. I like them all. And I, I was thinking about it, I, I was reminded, as I was sitting there and I heard my dad talking about going to Home Depot and he was walking through the aisles and he was like talking about, there was nothing about Jesus. You know, the first thought that popped in my mind was, I bet it's all sold out. That was it. That's literally what popped in my head. He said, there's nothing about Jesus. And I said, I bet they just sold all the Jesus stuff already. And then I stopped and I'm like, Kerr, that's dumb. No, it's not what happened. They're not like sold out on nativities at Home Depot. All right, like they just didn't put anything in there. And I realize that, like I know, I can, I can tell myself the truth, but I'm just going to default to optimism. All right, like I'm gonna get, I, and I hate it because, well, no, I don't hate it. I love it. I actually, I hate it for everyone else that doesn't live that way. I feel like all of you are like watching the plot of an M. Night Shyamalan movie in your life, and I'm like watching Pixar at all times. You know what I mean? Like it's always, I'm just always defaulting to the happy. Now, I like that, but the danger in that for me is optimism is not hope. Optimism isn't hope. It's just a personality. It's like just, it's just my tendency. Now, it may incline me to hope more quickly, but optimism is different than hope. Optimism is to look around at a circumstance and come to the best case scenario conclusion of what's happening in front of me. Hope is to look at a circumstance in front of me that may look dire and to look through the lens of the promises that God has kept in the past, through the lens of his faithfulness, and to insist on seeing a bad circumstance as it is, through the lens of what I know it will become because of the redemptive work of Jesus by his cross and resurrection. Now those are different. One, to look at a circumstance and just insist on seeing the glass half full. The second is to say, no, by what I know about who Jesus is, I will get to see even the negative circumstance differently. The cool thing about that is, whether or not you're a glass half empty, glass half full, my, you know, all my, uh, all my really, really pessimistic friends insist that they're realists. So if you think you're a realist, congratulations. You're a pessimist. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Some of you, some, maybe there's a couple of exceptions. Not many. Anyway, but, but regardless of whether or not you're a glass half empty, glass half full, whether or not you're an optimist, a pessimist, a realist, whether or not you are somebody who is more inclined to be very, very cerebral in the way that you look at life, or whether or not you're a feeler, regardless Optimism, pessimism, those can be all over the gamut. But hope is the unconditional reality of the kingdom. It doesn't matter about your personality. It doesn't matter about mine. And I have to guard against making sure that I don't settle for optimism when hope is given to me as an option. Now hope, hope is in light of who he has always been and who I know he will always be. I love, I love this invitation in here to be a people of hope. It's kind of unique. It's a little bit different than I expected. We, um, we went on a, a tour um, through Scripture a couple weeks ago. It was the, the week that we talked about Peter inviting us to study rocks. Remember, it was, uh, I think Brady Casper called it our geology Sunday. You know, that we, uh, Peter was talking about all these places where rocks showed up in the Old Testament. And he did that, obviously. He was 
You know, he was nicknamed Rock by Jesus. That's what Peter means. He had been Simon. He was renamed Rock. Um, this that even with all of his uncertainty and his here and there and everywhere, that God was going to establish him as a man of solidarity. And he kept finding rocks all through the Old Testament. And he walked us through in 1 Peter why those were so important to him. And one of those was in Isaiah chapter 8, um, verse 14. But I'm going to read to you um, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. It kind of comes up again. It's important here. It says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling. It's the point here. He says, uh, it's really unique. You know, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Set him apart as holy. Then be prepared to make this defense for hope. Here's what he's inviting us to do. It's a weird thing to say, be afraid. But it actually is a kind of consistent invitation from the Word of God. Now, you may have heard there are 365 places in God's Word where it says, do not fear. One for every day, unless it's a leap year, which, of course, you maybe just you can find something else to fill in that blank. 365 places, do not fear, have no fear. But there's also many places where it says, be afraid, rightly. Fear God. We see that even earlier in First Peter. Fear God, honor the emperor, like to fear him. Now, what is it talking about? This is what, this is what it's re- meaning here. Do not fear them, nor be troubled, but to set apart Christ as Lord. It's saying you have been given a better kind of fear. And I love this. What he's asking us to do, he says, be terrified of nothing. Nothing like you're afraid of this, that you would misrepresent his goodness. Or give the world a distorted view of Jesus. When it talks about giving a defense for this hope. He's saying, when you live life looking through the lens of God's faithfulness. You will see circumstances differently. You will see catastrophe and you will be able to call it catastrophe. But you will also be able to say, I'm putting on. I got, I got my glasses on today. You say like you put on your Romans 8.28 lens. You watch catastrophe. You see everyone around you beginning to melt down to say, wait, this is, this is a hopeless world. And you put on your lenses and you say all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's not optimism. That's hope. You say, I will see circumstances differently when I look through the lens when I look through the lens of hope. And when you live that way, people will come up to you and they will be offended, confused, surprised. There will be a variety of different responses. But all of those responses should lead to one place. Why? They should look at you and say, why? Why do you live this way? Why are you the way you are? Why? Do you face circumstances that anyone else would default to sadness or to hopelessness? And why do you respond with hope? Why are you the way you are? And it says in that moment, 
In that moment, the right response, there's a couple of things. One, obviously, be ready to give an answer. But two, he says, I want you to be afraid in that moment. It's kind of a weird invitation. In a moment that you would think the default should be gospel presentation. He says, I want you to be afraid of something. I want you to be terrified of living in any way that in front of a lost world you would misrepresent the goodness of Jesus. That in any way you would demonstrate a lack of kindness that is the only shot they've got of being led to repentance. I want you to live petrified of doing anything in front of the lost world that would be different than the way Jesus would react and respond to them. And you see it, he says, when you give this reason for the hope that's in you, you do it with gentleness and respect. Guys, I've noticed that, and this one, again, can be interesting because it's, there's some people's personalities that are just a little bit more, like like some people I know are, that are more intellectual, like to, well, like to kind of argue more. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a heart first and a head second kind of guy. You know, like that's just my, it's the way I'm wired. It's the way that I operate. Um, I, I like that. I'm, I'm, I love the way that the Lord has kind of given me that default response of being a person who's worried about how someone's going to feel before I'm worried about how they're going to think. And so this can be a little bit, maybe sometimes easier for me in a discussion with a person who's lost, but I, I've noticed, guys, it, this is not going to be dependent upon personality again. This is if the Spirit of God is in you and you are living in front of a lost world and they are trying to get a rise out of you, they're trying to do something, they are saying, man, this hope is offensive and I want to do anything to get them angry to make them respond to me the way that I'm going to, going to address them. Okay. The Spirit of God, you have to always be on your guard to ask him, Lord, keep me. Keep me from responding to the world the way the world responds to me. Your life should provoke a curiosity. And when it does, when it does, we get to act like forgiven people. And what do forgiven people do? They forgive. That's it. You forgive like you've been forgiven. We've talked about this a few times in here, but um, I think it bears repeating. I've not, I, I've been a little bit confused in the past few years as I've watched the church, meaning that's big C church, those who call themselves believers, interact with a lost world. Because so many times what I see kingdom people do is they seem to be confused when lost people do lost people things and guys do you ever think about this like if the world respond if lost people begin to do save people things the bible's wrong but when save people when people who claim that they know Jesus they've been forgiven much And because they've been forgiven much by the blood of Jesus, they now love much. When saved people respond with the same attitude as lost people, the Bible's wrong. Like, you and I, you and I are putting on display 
the truth and integrity of God's word by reenacting the life of Christ to a lost world. And here's the deal. If Jesus doesn't come back before this generation disappears, you are going to be the closest thing to the second coming they ever see. Do you realize that? You'll be the closest thing to the second coming of Jesus that they ever see if he doesn't come back in this generation. No, Lord will, and hopefully he will. But if not, guys, like he has put his personality, his goodness, all the characteristics of heaven, he has put in his people. How do I know that? Because his word repeats it over and over again. The goal of the gospel was not to get you from earth to heaven. It was to get the realities of heaven displayed through you. That your life would become a walking, living, breathing invitation to hope in the midst of a hopeless world. We're good, getting better people in the midst of a bad, getting worse world. It's just who we are. It's who we're called to be. And we must do that with gentleness and respect. And we do that with a clean conscience. It's the last thing he invites us into. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. He's talking about what it meant for the Jewish people to offer sacrifices that would remove their sin. They would take this, this priest would walk into a tent and he would offer a sacrifice. And he's saying, Jesus has done this. He's gone into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Guys, we have a good conscience. And that good conscience is not, it's not through the lens of our behavior. To live with a clean conscience is not to say I've performed well. It's not to say I've done well. It is to put on the lens of the blood and say by the blood of Jesus... I'm living in a brand new way. By the blood of Jesus, by the righteousness of Christ, he has been righteous enough for two. Actually, he's been righteous enough for many. And because of that, we come with a clean conscience before him. We live with a clean conscience before the world. He starts and ends with suffering. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And the last thing that I want to make sure that we don't miss, if that should be God's will. Guys, there are occasions when suffering is going to happen, but you will never. I don't know exactly what your life is going to hold. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know that when they write history books about the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, what will be in there. I know there will be something. I know years and years and years from now, if the world continues and Jesus doesn't return, then what will happen is there will be people that look back on this season of human history. There will be primary events. There will be devastations. There will be awesome things and heartbreaks and all kinds of things in between. But the one thing I know will never happen is that none of you will suffer outside of a sovereignty. None of you.
There's three things I want to make sure that as we come to a close and get to take communion today, three things I want to, I want to insist, three lenses I want to insist on you putting on. The first is that you would make sure that every time you hope, you don't hope out of optimism, you don't hope by trying to grin and bear it and disregarding the reality of what's in front of you, that you put on the lens of his faithfulness. And when you put on the lens of his faithfulness and you look at circumstances, you will find that you always default to hope. We talk about having a clean conscience and being somebody who lives purified. I want you to put on the lens of his blood. You do not do this by your own performance or behavior. You do this by the lens of his blood. And when you look through the lens of his finished work at the cross, his resurrection from the dead, your conscience can become clean by repentance from dead works. Because you love him too much to want to do anything else. And to make sure that the last lens you put on is that when you suffer, you put on the lens of his sovereignty. That you will suffer at some point. He's promised it. But it will never, never happen outside of his sovereignty. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Hey, Jesus, as we get to come before you, come to the table as we call it. Father, we get to remember what happened about 2,000 years ago, the night before your death. Lord, as you, as you broke bread with your disciples, as you took that, that third cup in the Passover meal and you said, hey, this is going to for now on forever represent the blood of my covenant with you. Father, you gave us the invitation to live with a clean conscience by your shed blood. Father, that my sin could be taken away because that bread that you broke and handed to your disciples represented your broken body. So Lord, as we, as we worship, as we come before you, as we remember what was done for us to cleanse us, I thank you, Jesus. I thank you that the gospel is not a side item to our lives. I thank you that it's the only shot we've got. I thank you, Lord, for the hope that is in us. And I ask you, Father, as we respond, may you invite us to see our suffering different and to use it as a means by which we can prove your goodness to a lost world that can't make sense of our hope. It's in your name and for your glory.